Jacob Krebnik is a filmmaker and photographer who creates stories through movement. His new documentary short, Then Comes the Body, is about underdogs, achieving a dream, and dance. And it starts with Daniel Ahala, a self-taught ballet dancer who discovers the European dance form in the American movie, Save the Last Dance. And with no ballet schools in Nigeria, he opens Leap of Dance Academy in his front yard. Well, Jacob often collaborates with people whose voices are not well represented to find unconventional and dignifying ways to share narratives, and he has achieved that with his film, Then Comes the Body. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome filmmaker and photographer Jacob Krebnik and his inspiring documentary short film, Then Comes the Body, to the show. Welcome, Jacob. Hi there. Great to be here. Thanks well, when did you first hear about the Leap of Dance Academy? So Leap of Dance Academy uh, makes waves in the first summer of the pandemic, um, about six months in. Um, they had a video go viral of one of their dancers uh, dancing and doing pirouettes in a muddy yard. And it was a really striking image. It was raining. It was beautiful. It was a lo-fi phone video. And I think it was just one of those images that gave people an immediate sense of hope and beauty and struggle and crisis. And it was a point in time when everyone in the world was kind of ready for something like that. Um, I collaborate a lot with dancers and I'm, I'm often looking for just dance stories that tug on my imagination. And I came across it in the first week that the video had gone viral. And then I kept following Leap of Dance, you know, in a pretty active way as news story after news story came out about them and thought like, ah, this is a fascinating thing to follow. Um, I reached out a few times, you know, I'd, maybe every two, three months, I would send them a shout on Instagram and say, hey, dance filmmaker in New York, love what you're doing, would love to know more. And it was clear that they just had a huge amount of inbound attention and didn't really know what to do with the curious guy from New York. Uh, so it's probably about a year into following up with them and following their story and really just seeing it play out on Instagram that I wound up connecting with Daniel, the founder of the school, and starting to talk about what I was interested in learning more about. And he gradually introduced me to his students uh, over video chat and things started to build. Well, why was it so important for you to expose or reveal the Leap of Dance to more people around the globe? So Leap of Dance Academy gets this deluge of attention in a way that, you know, this happens all the time now, right? With the, the, the internet allows for swells of attention to focus on people. And I, I've made work in the past that has had a little bit of a viral quality to it. And, you know, it's, it's quick, it's, uh, it's fleeting. And as I, the more that I watched stories, the more that I read about Leap of Dance, then the more I had this curiosity about what is life really like outside of the frame? What am I not seeing here? And in interviews, you'd see, you know, lots of children smiling and Daniel offering, you know, kind of the same story again and again and again. And I just thought there's so much that is clearly happening in their lives that is not being told and not being shared. And, you know, one of the things I tend to do with my work is make pretty strong cinematic looking images with a really small team. And I thought, God, I'd love to go 
and see it myself, tell the story through their words and have their invitation into their world rather than, you know, what a lot of the news reporters were doing, which is just literally phoning it in or zooming it in and saying, show us, show us from, you know, your phone, what it looks like. Well, when you met Daniel Ahala for the first time, what was your impression of his dedication to the art of ballet? So Daniel's, Daniel is an extremely unusual person to, I mean, he's, of course, he's unusual. He's started uh, a ballet school where, you know, there isn't one um, on a continent that doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, ballet to begin with. Um, Daniel is someone whose enthusiasm is pretty off the charts. He works tirelessly in a way that, you know, I think you might meet people like this in your life a handful of times who have a conviction and who have a curiosity and an orientation and a drive um, that stands out. And it is one of those noteworthy things where you think, boy, this is, I mean, yes, there is a little bit of celebration of Daniel, but this is a pretty selfless act. This is hard work every day. The thanks he gets are, you know, they're, they're real, but it's not, it is not riches. Um, it's a kind of interdedication that, you know, it just, it makes you feel quite stirred, I think, to see. Um, and also he understands that he had a dream studying something that he, he really couldn't pursue well. And now he's in his early thirties and he knows he will not be a professional ballet dancer. And, you know, rather than lament that, I think he's just interested in finding a way to open up the doors for another generation of people in a place where, you know, without him, that door just, it's not even that it won't open. The door doesn't exist. No one knows about it. Yeah. And it really kind of, it brings the truth to the term for those who can't teach, but he can, but it was due to his environment, I guess, is the reason why he couldn't pursue it on his own, but he continued to bring ballet to those where he was at. And in your film, which is beautifully shot, by the way, the first scene where the young lady, uh, Olamide, appears. She's dancing ballet in the muddy streets with ballet slippers on, bringing beauty to an area that is not beautiful at all. And that was just a striking image. Yeah, you know, one of the things that that drew me to this story in the first place Um, because while I work with dancers, I'm not a classically trained dancer. I'm not a trained dancer at all. Um, (laughs) I'm actually not that interested in, in ballet. I'm interested in stories and the story to me here, that's, that, that was fascinating from a distance was you have a European dance form that is all about perfection and about lines and grace. And it is a very white activity. Um, Ballet dancers tend to wear white in addition to being white people. And after centuries, ballet comes to America where it prospers. And this Hollywood movie winds up inspiring this young man in Africa uh, when he's 13 years old. Um, He sees Save the Last Dance starring Julia Stiles in 2001. And he gets excited by it. And he thinks, I have to learn how to do this. I have to figure out how to do this. And the internet enables that. And so it's this story of 
globalism and of culture kind of dancing around the world. And the idea that this, that, that something has kind of flown, you know, across the ocean and back and has turned into uh, a school where people can study, but also, you know, a passion that is ultimately being reinterpreted and co-opted. And now instead of setting on, you know, a magnificent stage, you know, in the Paris opera, then it's oftentimes on the street, in the mud, wherever they can do it. And, you know, of course, as a filmmaker, like seeing that, seeing that contrast is thrilling. Well, and I want to bring up that contrast because I watched the film more than once and something caught my eye and I had to pause it and I just looked at it. There was a moment when the camera blurred Day in the foreground with the background very clear. Uh, for you, what were you trying to tell us through your lens with just that moment? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're speaking about. Whenever we work, so the, the cinematographer who I, I went to Nigeria with is a super talented close friend of mine named Soren Nielsen. We've done most of the dance work that I've made has been with him as my cinematographer. One of the things we talked about is how, you know, we can always anticipate when we film in public, there being people watching us. And when people stare at the camera, that often ruins some of the illusion of what we're trying to create. And so knowing that, and from experience, we try to think about how are we going to work around that? What's our, what's our methodology for working around that? In this case, we're interested in showing how the community is kind of constantly watching the students. And in some cases, they're watching the students with delight. And in that moment, we hear from Olamide, as she says, the haters are all around me. They're around me everywhere I go. Always telling you, you can't do this, you can't do that. And there is a sense because the, you know, the students all live in the community there and they know that eyes are on them. And as much celebration as there is, um, there's also a sense, I think, of, of great vulnerability and a sense of being always watched. There's, there's very little privacy. Everyone's living in public. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it's a great moment. Um, and for a lot of you who will have the opportunity to see it, um, you need a quick eye. And, uh, but I want to ask you too, because what was uh, Aloma Day's reaction to getting a scholarship to a ballet school in South Africa? I mean, leading her out of Nigeria. So the film focuses, we have, we have two protagonists in the film. And Olamide is 21 years old, which is pretty old in ballet to be seeking higher education. Um, as she says in the film, that's really reserved for kids who are younger. Um, She's excited and she's nervous and she's, in a way, she's the matriarch of the school. Um, when Daniel is away traveling, she teaches everyone. She's the oldest student. She's been there since the beginning. Um, and I think she, she feels a tremendous responsibility on her shoulders that, you know, she, she will, she comes from a family where no one has left Nigeria. Um, people don't tend to leave that community they don't tend to leave the city in general so i think it's it's nerve-wracking in all the ways you'd anticipate from 
the idea of traveling abroad. But it's also with the weight of the community. And in this case, the community is pretty large. There's a lot of people who go to the academy and have parents and everyone's families are all there and kind of intertwined. So it's a lot. It's a lot. And without a lot of people who have blazed that that path before her. Yeah, now there's, and then you have the opposite. You have a 13-year-old girl, Precious Duru, who got a scholarship to a ballet school in Belgium. How are these young people being discovered? So the opportunities that have come to Leap of Dance have, they really all spiral out of the initial viral reaction. Um, A lot of, you know, a lot of dance schools got in touch with Daniel and were interested in inviting him and some of his better students, his stronger students, to come visit, take classes. So he's been to, he's made a lot of trips to the UK and to Italy in particular, although there's been a lot of trips around Europe. And they'll go for a week or two at a time and the students will take tons of classes. Daniel will also sit in on classes and see how other people teach. Because, you know, mind you, he's, he's a ballet teacher who hasn't studied under other ballet teachers. So he has to learn too. And as, you know, as these trips have built, then these dance schools in other countries have seen the skills that, you know, he's been able to foster and his students and a handful of them have earned the right to be invited to some of these more hallowed institutions. And I think it's, it's not that, you know, this is not a dream factory where everyone who passes through suddenly winds up, um, you know, being magnificent, that's, that's, that would be absurd. But there are a few, a few students who have been, you know, invited to leave. I'm in pretty regular touch with both Olamide and Precious. And, um, you know, Precious is, she's now 14, and she's living in Brussels. And life is radically different than it was last year. So, I mean, it, it is a massive evolution for some of these students. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it'll be a cultural shock to anyone, anyone leaving that neighborhood of Nigeria and being in Brussels, you know, and I, I can't even imagine what that must be like for her. But at the same time, good for her because she's going to mature in ways that most 13, 14 year olds would not. And I think one reaction I can see it being a blessing. Cool. What now? One reaction is that it's very cold <laughs> in, in, in London and, or in Brussels. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, there. There is no winter in Nigeria. There's just uh, there's rainy season and dry season. So <laughs> that's it. Now, I want <laughs> well, I want to bring up a very important part of this film. Um, you were explaining the conversation, or Daniel. Daniel was explaining the conversation he had over the phone with someone in Italy. Can you tell us about that conversation? Yeah. So the way that ballet is perceived, I'll start off by saying the way that ballet is perceived in Nigeria is, is quite different than, than you know, it would be say here in the States. Um, you know, even here in the States, if you have a young boy doing ballet, then maybe there are ways in which that boy is picked on. Maybe it's not considered masculine enough. And that absolutely carries over in Nigeria. But it's it's far it's so much less common. I mean, ballet doesn't have uh, a cultural footprint. So the reaction to having students do ballet in the first place is that uh, it, it ranges from, "Hey, this is um, 
this is treasonous. This is taboo. Um, this is for girls. Uh, this is too effeminate. Uh, this is ungodly. But it also seems impractical. It doesn't have any kind of practical application because there are no theaters and there are no jobs in ballet. And so if you're studying something really seriously several hours a day and it has no future financially, then if you're from a poor community, it's pretty reasonable to question why your kids might really dedicate themselves to that. So when Daniel starts traveling to Europe and spending time around almost entirely white schools and is suddenly there with a small entourage of his young Nigerian students, then they feel very in touch with being the only black people in the room. And he said that to me many times that we're almost always the only black people here. And they're definitely the only African people there. And he's had a lot of experiences being in places where there is a sentiment that, hey, this is not your dance form. This is not something you need to be doing or should be doing. You should go home and pursue your own dance. And when he shares that, I think there are, there are a lot of different flavors to what is a racist comment. Um, but I think that sentiment is so strong right now as we have a sense of how people are resisting pluralism and globalism and diversity. And, you know, what it means to be a sensitive member of society is really open to interpretation. But, you know, in America, I think we, we our country is, um, it's very segmented, but it is at, at a whole, it's quite diverse when Daniel goes to Italy and is surrounded by Italian people, uh, I think he feels like there's a very different set of laser beam eyes on him um, as a black African person. Um, so it's been tough for them. They really, they take that energy and I think they feel in some ways, um, I think, I think they feel empowered by it because it is something to react to. You know, they are, they are aware that they are underdogs and it is a big thing for them it's a, it's a major hurdle for them to climb. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Jamaica having a bobsled team. You know, and yeah. I, I've, even, I've even talked to uh, black country music artists. And even within their own race, they would tell me, they, they told me I'm in the wrong genre. You know, go do rhythm and blues, go do rap. But, you know, you're not supposed to be in country. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, we, we need to take the blinders off. And realize that all of our blood runs the same color and we can set out to do whatever dream is planted in our heart and, and go for it. And, and I found your film so inspiring and it should be inspiring for everyone who watches it. And you're really opening up the eyes of, of so many. Uh, I also noticed too that Daniel, and I love this, Daniel was very encouraging to Precious. Um, for you, what do you think her future holds? Precious is remarkable. Um, Precious is, is, is a rare case of someone who seems like they have um, the disposition and the energy and the bravery that is just totally built for ballet. Um, she was very shy. We spent 10 days together. Um, she was not super forthcoming when we would speak 
Um, but had an amazing presence and smile. And as she would begin dancing, her energy would completely evolve. And, you know, when we spoke about uh, with, with, with everyone, we had an interview at the end of our 10 days there, uh, spent most of the time, you know, living in their community and working with them all day and, and talking a lot, uh, but didn't record an interview, which is what you hear in the film until the very end. And it reminded me of other dancers whom I've worked with in that there are some people who are just wildly articulate through their movement and body in a way that is singular. And she has that. Um, she seems totally fearless to me. Um, and I really admire that. I think that's it's going to take her really far. Now, was it precious dancing on the top of the yellow bus? It was. It was. You know, with most of the film is 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 made within you know very near proximity to the school, but I wanted to also bring some of the students and Daniel away from the school and away from their you know from their home base a little bit because part of the story is about how some of them are about to leave home, and so I wanted to honor this idea that they're preparing to leave. And before we went to before we went to Lagos, then. I'm doing tons of scouting, looking around uh, Google Google Street View photographs. And I, I came across a handful of these bus parks where there are these iconic yellow buses that people take everywhere. And I thought, you know, a way of giving her a stage in public, which is something I think a lot about with my work, you know, would be maybe to put her on top of this vehicle, which would kind of, you know, almost be like a, a, a stand-in for the, for the plane or for a space shuttle. Um, and you know, when, I, when I asked my producer to help me find a bus park, she was like, well, finding a bus park is no problem, uh, but finding a bus park where there's an elevated vantage point so you can look down on it is something that took a while. And as we pitched that to, to Precious, uh, you know, a bit nervously, like, hey, I have this harebrained idea that you may find absurd and you may find it uncomfortable. And if you don't like this idea, this is absolutely not something you should do. Um, if you feel unsafe, if you feel nervous, or if you feel this doesn't represent you, it's really important when I work with dancers, they have to feel completely in line with the idea. Otherwise we scrap it. And she loved it. She was like, yes, absolutely. And, um, after the scene was filmed, I asked her, if, you know, how it really felt. And she was, she was quick to admit to me that she was nervous, not because there were people gathering around by the hundreds. <laughs> but because the top of the bus was relatively bouncy. And so if you look close, you can actually see it, you know, kind of like giving, giving way under her, you know, relatively lightweight. <laughs> well, I, I, I noticed that. And I, when I rewatched the film, I, I stopped. I, I paused the film with Precious dancing on top of one of the yellow buses. And I just sat there and I looked at it and, and it dawned on me. Regardless where one lives in the world, you can be dancing on top of it. Mm. And in a way, did I, get, did I get part of that scene right? I like that interpretation. That hasn't, that hasn't been my <laughs> internal phrasing. But, you know, the... The idea of zooming out and seeing this whole space 
is to show how large the world is and how much, you know, I think Lagos is a, is a massive city. There's 15 million people living there and it is loud and it is bustling in a way that it really dwarfs what New York is like. But I wanted to show that even in a place like that, you can find a very small spot to make your own and perform. And I, yeah, I, I might take your interpretation and try to, uh, well, I'll be thinking about that. I, I find that really elegant. You, you, I, yeah. I give you, I give you the interpretation to do whatever <laughs> you like, but, but now, now you've enlarged my own vision because I didn't realize that 15 million people live there. So, and within 15 million people, it only takes one person to break out, to break through, and change and reach other parts of the world. And that's what Daniel has done, even like you said, with his little cell phone video. But then you come in with such cinematic beauty and tell this story that it inspires us, it motivates us. It, it it's almost and in a way, it, yeah, there I don't even want to call them underdogs, but I understand in which the economic situation what it's like there, but to see somebody spend their time, their dedication, their passion to give to others and have those others be branches and buds and blooms in other parts of the world. That that's exactly what your film has done. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, the story itself is inspiring. This is like when you film a child, childs are beautiful and cute. You don't have to work too hard to make it, to make it more. So one of the things that I want to do with the film that I hope it accomplishes because a lot of people already know their story. Um, is I want to give it some depth and I want to give it some texture. And I, I wanted to, to make sure that it also reflects in some way that their world is delicate and precarious, you know, without it being, without it being um, a film that, that inspires anyone's pity. You know, as Daniel says, they don't want pity. They want to earn they're right on the pedestal. They want to earn their, you know, their, their right to advance. Um, and yet I think for people who live, you know, in such a wildly fortunate, privileged country as we do, I find it helpful as a, as a human and as a parent, uh, as a, as a person uh, who doesn't always know what to do in the world to make it better. I think creating stories where people can look at characters and think, my God, that is what it looks like to dedicate yourself or to have compassion or to be motivated or to create no matter what, even if you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, there are a lot of takeaways here, I think, that aren't just like, ah, that is beauty in a place where I didn't expect it. Um, it's more than that. It is more than that. And we need more people like Daniel in this world 
to be completely uh, selfless, fully giving. And, and, and one of the things that I was really surprised about was that he said, I, I went on YouTube to, to learn what ballet was, the movements of ballet. And I'm like, now there's a guy <laughs> that it's like, it's like taking dust from the earth and creating something of, of great form. And it's, it's extremely inspiring. And, and for you, Jacob, I mean, how has this film been received in Nigeria? It hasn't. So the film has not been received in Nigeria yet. Uh, no one's seen it. I mean, half a dozen people have seen the film in its finished form. Um, the Lipa Dance community is super excited. Um, the world premiere will be at the Tribeca Film Festival in about a week from today's conversation. Um, and as for what happens next, I don't entirely know. The film will be public, it will be on the internet, it will be shareable, but it will take a little bit. We're gonna do film festivals uh, for a season or two. And in the meantime, I am organizing a, uh, an in-person screening for the Leap of Dance community. That'll be in some point in the next month. Um, I have to work out how to get a projector and a big sound system and reliable power, which are all, they're things to coordinate. Um, but it's really important to me that they see it big, that they hear it loud, um, and that other people can, you know, the community can watch it. Um, as you see in the film, there's a lot of walls and there's a lot of open space. Um, and it just, it feels criminal to imagine it being watched on a laptop with a lot of people gathered around for the first time. So yeah, we're working on, on trying to put together a big local screening. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what the look on their face. I know it'll all be smiles to see all of them watching that film on a, on a very large screen as loud as it can be heard. And I can't even imagine how large the crowd is actually going to be to see it, you know? So I wouldn't be surprised if the whole neighborhood shows up to watch and Jacob, what an incredible body of work you created through your lens, through your inspiration. So what is next for Jacob Krepnik? What's next? Um, my work in film uh, began with a feature-length dance film uh, called Girl Walk All Day. And it really changed my life, the act of making it, but really the act of sharing it seeing seeing people react to film um that was dancey it was movement based it was it was uh, it was a fun piece of work and that's what set me on this path and it's been a long road to to now and i've been wanting to make another feature film for a long time and right now i'm in development for another one that will be global that will take place in a lot of different places and you know my work tends to combine things that I'm academically really drawn toward, stories that feel kind of intellectual, but wrapped in something that's just overtly joyful so that you're brought in with some kind of shimmer and delight, and then hopefully left thinking about what the 
what the story is really trying to do. And, you know, the, the journey to make a film was a huge one to finance it, to figure out how to make it all happen logistically is, you know, even a small piece is its own Mount Everest, but um, it's time for feature film number two. Well, I can't wait. And Jacob, you will always have an open invitation to my show. So within the next project that you do and you get it finished and get it ready to show, come back and I want to see it. I want to talk about it. Uh, I want to expose all of my viewers and listeners to your world of looking through a lens. I, I love the inspiration. I love the storytelling. And, and I love the fact that you look for bringing the joyful moments that are found in our world that we may not notice just yet, but it's people like you that, that bring these things to life and to, to bless all of us with, uh, again, I call it cinematic art, artwork because that's what it is. And you've done a stellar job and for uh, at the Tribeca Film Festival, much success to you with this incredible film. <laughs> then you. comes the body. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to keep uh, your eyes open for this one when it is available to the general public. It is a must see. So keep that in mind. And again, Jacob, I want to thank you for the pleasure and the honor of having you thank on the you. show. Oh, thank you. It's it's a really it was such a joy to make. It's a joy to see you react to it. And uh, I appreciate the time, the questions. Thank you. You are very welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, please uh, tune in always to the Ward Bond Show, as well as check us out online on our brand new YouTube channel called Bond on Cinema, which will you you will see people just like Jacob other film directors, screenwriters, as well as actors talking about film. We love to watch them. We love to engross ourselves in them. And I will tell you this again and again, Jacob's incredible short film documentary, Then Comes the Body, is an absolute must-see. Keep your eyes peeled for it because it's coming your way. And for me, I'll see you next time.